morning we are going to be looking at Acts 13. In the last part of it, last week we looked at verses 1 through 12. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 52. And so, um, one of the things that I want us to kind of think about for a minute is, have you ever experienced an unexpected blessing? Kind of an unexpected blessing. So, um, think about that for a minute. And when I say an unexpected blessing, I'm not talking about a surprise or even like a larger tax refund than what you expected. Um, but rather, I'm thinking of those times where you're annoyed, discouraged, angered, or disappointed, and find out that this annoying, discouraging, angering, or disappointing thing was actually an unforeseen blessing. So maybe some of you have gone to a doctor's appointment for one thing, only to find out that they found something else more serious and are able to treat it. Or you're like me, where you're speeding down the road, and you get stuck behind a person that's following the speed limit, and your impatience builds, and before you know it, you pass a cop on the side of the road, and you're like, praise God that I was behind this guy, right? All that frustration and annoyance all of a sudden turned into this blessing. See, the truth is, is that any curveball that gets thrown into the mix of our desires can cause us to lose sight that God is still sovereign. And in a culture and a season of life that lacks certainty, God's promises are still true. He's working to fulfill His promise in spite of what we see or what we feel. And see, this is demonstrated clearly in this passage this morning in Acts 13. So let's go ahead and pray for this message this morning. Let's go ahead and pray for God's Word to just be implanted on our heart. Let's do that together. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks that we can come together, that we can gather together, and we can worship. Father, I pray that you'd settle my own spirit this morning, that it be your spirit who moves powerfully, that you be your spirit who speaks through me. Bind the work of the enemy in the name of Jesus. And Father, may you come forth with power. May we hear, God, not what we want to hear, but God, may we allow you to be the one that speaks to our hearts this morning. And may we be encouraged by your word and the truth of your spirit at work revealing your word to us. And we put these things in your hand this morning, and we ask this in your name. Amen. The heart of this passage is the truth that God's work in fulfilling his promise encourages us to trust in Him and His ways. God's work in fulfilling His promise encourages us to trust in Him and His ways. So it's the fact that God's promise actually encourages us. Now this morning, because it's such a large section of Scripture, we're not going to read it in its entirety before we begin going through the text, but we'll be reading it as we move through the text this morning. And so in verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, What's unique about this particular passage is that we're told first that John, who is also known as Mark, actually departs from them. So 
Paul and Barnabas, and we're actually told he is basically his companions, we begin to see the establishment of Paul's ministry going out into Asia Minor and into the other regions, into Samaria and the rest of the world. But John Mark was an individual who they had gathered at the church of Jerusalem and brought back with them after Paul and Barnabas had taken the gift, and we saw that at the end of Acts 12, that they took the gift to the church of Jerusalem. Excuse me, we saw that in Acts 11. They take the gift to the church of Jerusalem because of an impending famine. When they return from Jerusalem, they bring John Mark. And the reason this is important is that John Mark was a trusted assistant to Paul and Barnabas. And he leaves. He takes off. And while we won't be dealing with that today, we do know that in Acts 15, this departure of John Mark's becomes a point of conflict between Barnabas and Paul. But we can imagine that Paul and Barnabas were actually discouraged and frustrated by John Mark leaving. That this assistant that was with them, that they brought with them, now chooses to leave. We don't know why they leave. We do know that the, that the Antioch that, uh, in Pisidia, that this is not the same Antioch in which Paul and Barnabas were sent out from. In fact, Antioch and Pisidia is actually the region known today as Galatia, or in Scripture, known today as Galatia. And so the book of Galatians is a written to the church that it resides in the area of Antioch and Pisidia. And so what we do know is that this was a city that sat on the top of a mountain. The elevation was about 3,600 feet above sea level. The journey to the town was considered hard, not easy. And as a part of that trek, we know that Paul most likely got sick during that time. We're told in Galatians 4 that he developed an ailment during that ministry, and he stayed with the church there for over a year to minister as he was recovering from that ailment. So this is an important place that they're heading to bring the gospel to a place that had not heard the gospel of Christ yet. So verses 14 and 15 continues. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul and Barnabas and his companions go and sit in the synagogue. And we're told that as they sit in the synagogue, that the leaders, after looking at them, look and say, Hey, if you have any words of encouragement for the body, give them now. Or for the, the, the Jews, give it now. And so what we see is that Paul uses this moment to give encouragement in the truth that God is a promise keeper. He actually takes this opportunity to point out to them that God is a promise keeper and this should be an encouragement to our souls. For many of us, we understand that God is one who keeps his promises, but what impact does that have on your life? Do you find encouragement in that? Is that just a nice theological exercise that God is faithful to fulfill His promise? Or is that this gives us encouragement in seasons and in times when we're discouraged, we're annoyed, we're frustrated, we're angry? That God is still at work. And so there's four specific things that we see in the encouragement in God as a promise keeper that Paul reveals. The first is this. That God is faithfully bringing about His redemptive plan as revealed in history. God faithfully brings about his redemptive plan as revealed in history. Notice what it says. Paul's first words to them was, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. 
Now, he's speaking specifically here when he says, you who fear God, to a group of Gentiles who were sitting in the synagogue who had not yet fully converted to Judaism, but who were believing in what Judaism was about. They were following the Old Testament law. He goes on and he says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought about Israel, a Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. Behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So everything that God is doing to this point is pointing to the coming redemption through Jesus. All of redemptive history points to Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament points to Jesus coming. But it's more than that. What we know God doing, because God does not change, is that because He works in history, He also works towards the present and future. It means that His redemptive work has not stopped, and it continues moving forward. Now, this is true whether we recognize it or not. And God's Word makes it clear that He has faithfully demonstrated His grace throughout history. Notice what he says. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. God initiated relationship with the fathers of Israel. He's the one that reached out to them. And for about 40 years, it says he put up with them in the wilderness. This is a, a grace of God, right? I mean, for many of us, you got disobedient children walking in the wilderness. The last thing that we're doing is like, okay, fine, you're done. Like, you're out of here, right? No, he's demonstrating his grace. He actually promises and grants them the promise after they walk through the wilderness. It says this as well. It says, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. This is a patient God that we serve. His promises are not fulfilled in the timing that we would often like. Right? There are times in my life that physically, I'm like, Lord, you could just come back right now. Like, I would be really happy if I didn't have to deal with this broken body, right? I mean, I, when I go to bed, I have the weirdest things. You guys know because there's like, so I've got this, I, I, I like look like a freaking medical doctor's office in our bedroom. Like, I got this machine that keeps track of my heart at night that sends data to the hospital throughout the evening which is a nice little feature, by the way. On top of it, I got a nice little tube that gets to go over for, you know, for a nice little CPAP machine to help me breathe, right, at night. I mean, it's weird. This body, this temple is really broken at times. And yet, God's timing is not now. 
for his return. God's timing is not for his glorification. And as much as I would like to die a gentle death, I don't know, right? I mean, when you ask somebody, hey, how do you want to die? If you're a follower of Christ, your first thing is, well, I just want Jesus to come back, right? That's the way to go. But the truth is, is God's timing is different than our timing. And God is still working about His redemptive history that even in our trials, God is actually using that for His glory. In 1988, my parents divorced. And I have to be honest with you, I can honestly share with you, I never saw anything redemptive about it. And it wasn't until years later when God had me in ministry and I was watching another family go through what our family had gone through, but this time I was walking through it as a pastor and a shepherd. That I was able to look back and to remember what God had showed me during that time and also what God had taught me about how to love people through that time. And I can tell you that the difference of that was is that God had placed upon my heart to love a family, to love this family well in the face of the loss of spouse and the unrepentance of a spouse. And what I began seeing was that God had redemptive purposes that were beyond what I could see then. And that God used those things almost 20 years later to the day. The truth is that God's purposes are still at work even when we don't recognize them. And He is at work throughout redemptive history. You see, all of redemptive history is working and pointing towards Jesus. And all that God is doing today is pointing towards Jesus and His coming. 1 Peter 1, 20-21 says this, He says, He was foreknown, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. It was God's plan all along to send His Son, Jesus, to redeem mankind. It was His plan all along. And so even though the Israelites wanted their king then, as we see in these passages, God's timing was totally different. Robert Murray McShane puts it this way, Christ frequently gives us the desires of our heart, though not at the peculiar time we desired but a better time. The point is, God is working in history even when we don't recognize it. But there's a special little note in that, and it's in verses 26 through 29, where it says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of the salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You see, God often uses the spiritual blindness of men for his redemptive purpose. 
God often uses the spiritual blindness of men for His redemptive purpose. We operate in the land of COVID-19. We have a choice. The choice is to believe that God is still working and have joy in the fact that God is still working and that God works in ways that we don't understand. Or we can get ticked and angry and angry at our government and governors and leaders and everything else. The truth is, is that it doesn't mean that we don't actually have opinions and say, let's be reasonable. But it does mean what angers your heart. Do you find yourself more angered by sin or the ridiculousness of our leaders at times? Do you find yourself sitting, reflecting on the things of today, the problems in COVID, the problems of life? Or do you find yourself focusing on the promise of God that God is actually using this season and desiring to use you in the midst of it to reveal his glory? If what we are known is for our political opinions as opposed to for Christ, we've missed the mark. If more people know us for what we believe about politics than what we believe about Jesus, we've missed the mark. We are glorifying man rather than glorifying God. And the church, I believe, is missing a big opportunity. God is doing something new that we can't see but that we can trust because redemption history says it is occurring. Redemptive history says that even this now is pointing to the glory of Jesus and the hope of Jesus. And this should be an encouragement to us that any time that God has done a wonderful, magnificent work, we have not seen it before it occurs. We need to grab hold of this, guys. As this church, we need to be known for Jesus. Let the world be known for the world, but let Christ be known for his, by his followers. You see, God often uses the spiritual blindness of men, which means that they're going to do ridiculous and unreasonable things. The Jews that didn't believe that didn't understand the Scriptures, they themselves killed the Messiah that God was providing for them. Unreasonableness of men is often used to bring about the purposes of God. You see, throughout history, God has used the spiritual blindness of people to bring about those purposes. In fact, in Habakkuk 1, the Lord answers Habakkuk's cry to spare Israel, and He tells him, God tells Habakkuk, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Here's what he was saying. He was saying, listen, I'm bringing to you this. I'm actually bringing to you the Chaldeans, these wicked people, and I'm going to use them to judge you. Spiritually blind people being used even under the sovereign God that we serve. See, the hardness of heart in the Chaldeans was utilized to bring judgment against Israel. Heard of a great story. It was written by a man named Robert Matthews, and he called a local radio station, and two years after 9-11 took place in 2003, 
He shared this story. He said, a few weeks before September 11th, my wife and I found out we were going to have our first child. She planned a trip out to California to visit her sister. On our way to the airport, we prayed that God would grant my wife a safe trip and be with her. Shortly after I said amen, we both heard a loud pop and the car shook violently and we had blown a tire. I replaced the tire as quickly as I could, but we still missed her flight. Both very upset, we drove home. I received a call from my father, who's a retired New York City firefighter. He asked me what my wife's flight number was, but I explained that we missed the flight. My father informed me that her flight was the one that crashed into the Southern Tower. I was too shocked to speak. My father also had more news for me. He was going to help. This is not something I can just sit by for. I have to do something, he said. I was concerned for his safety, of course, but more because he had never given his life to Christ. After a brief debate, I knew his mind was made up, and before he got off the phone, he said, Take good care of my grandchild. Those were the last words I ever heard my father say. He dialed while helping in the rescue effort. My joy that my prayer of safety for my wife had been answered quickly became anger. I was angry at God, at my father, and at myself. I'd gone for nearly two years blaming God for taking my father away. My son would never know his grandfather. My father had never accepted Christ, and I never got to say goodbye. And something happened. About two months ago, in July of 2003, I was sitting at my home with my wife and my son when there was a knock at the door. I looked at my wife, but I could tell she wasn't expecting anyone. I opened the door to a couple with a small child. The man looked at me and asked if my father's name was Jake Matthews. I told him it was. He quickly grabbed my hand and said, I never got the chance to meet your father, but it's an honor to meet his son. He explained to me that his wife had worked in the World Trade Center and had been caught inside that attack. She was pregnant and had been caught under debris. And then he explained that my father had been the one to find his wife and free her. My eyes welled up with tears as I thought of my father giving his life for people like this. Then he said, there's something else you need to know. His wife then told me that as my father worked to free her, she talked to him and led him to Christ. I began sobbing at the news. See, God works in ways that we just don't understand. And we need to embrace that. We need to embrace that the God that is a God who keeps promises is still at work even when we don't recognize it, and even when He uses unreasonable and hardened people, that His work is still being done. Galatians 3.13-14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You see, Christ inherited our curse so that we wouldn't have to be cursed, but could be blessed. That's what he does. And the point that Paul makes here is he's pointing out that Jesus not only blesses us, but he's taken our curse. So then we also see here the second thing, that God fulfills his promise through the resurrection of Christ. God fulfills His promise through the resurrection of Christ. 
It says, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to his fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. See, although the Jews were looking for a savior who was actually going to rule in the land of Israel, God made it clear that his promised king would rule eternally over all the nations. He would actually die and rise again. In Psalm 2, we're actually told there that, that it says that we were begotten, that Jesus was begotten or forsaken by God. This Messiah to come was actually to die. That's what it was saying. But more importantly, Psalm 1611 says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. After quoting this, Paul then goes on and says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. The point is this. The Messiah that they were looking for actually had to rise again. The resurrection of Jesus was foretold. And so it was fulfilled. The promise of God for a Savior was fulfilled not when Jesus died, but when Jesus rose again. Because it was at that point that he defeated death and is able to rule eternally over all men and over all nations. James Boyce says this, Christianity is not just a philosophy or a set of ethics, though it involves these things. Essentially, Christianity is a proclamation of facts that concern what God has done. Jesus has died and been risen again. That's the fact. And it is in that that Jesus fulfills his promise through the resurrection of Christ. As a result of that resurrection, the third thing is that God grants the promise of forgiveness and freedom from sin through faith in Christ. We can now apply that promise to our life. So God is working throughout redemptive history. He uses spiritually blind men often as a part of that. He fulfills his promise for a Savior through the resurrection because the Savior needed to die and rise again to live eternally and reign over all men and over all creation. And then God grants this promise to us through forgiveness and freedom of sin through faith. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now notice, there's something else with this. Salvation only comes through faith. Forgiveness of sin comes only through faith in Jesus. The freedom from that sin comes only through Jesus as well. So God is saving through Jesus, but he's also sanctifying through Jesus. What does that mean? A lot of us, I think, come to Jesus and then we try in our own strength to live out our faith. And that becomes a heavy, heavy burden. The point is this, is that when we are walking with Christ, the reason that that yoke is light is because our life becomes one of submission to Him. 
Instead of trying to always remember the law, what we come to is, God, what is it you desire from me? And I come to you in a place of submission before you. And so my life is not about following, quote-unquote, the law. My life is about submitting to Christ, of which the law is being fulfilled in. And so the yoke becomes lighter because now it becomes about submitting to Him rather than trying to follow all these rules and laws. Now, God's Word tells us how God desires us to live. And so by knowing God's Word, then I know how to submit to Christ. And when I don't know, I get to go back to His Word. I get to come back to His Word and underneath His Word. Now, there's a warning that He gives there. In the warning, He says, Look, you scoffers, beware. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. For those that choose not to believe in Christ, there is judgment to come. And that warning is strong. So God is a God who is a promise keeper, but His work is going forward both in redemptive history and then through the fulfillment of the resurrection of Jesus. And then this promise is granted to us through faith. And then finally, He says, listen, There's this warning that if you don't respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll face his judgment. But this is not just for the Jew. The gospel is for all. He says, for all who don't believe. Right? The opposite of him saying in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, right? That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The same is true in an opposite form that whoever chooses not to believe shall not have eternal life. You see, it is only through faith that the promise is applied to our life. The promise of salvation, forgiveness of sin, and freedom from sin comes through faith in Jesus. And the promise is applied through faith. And then finally with this, that promise therefore, is made available to and for all. So God mercifully makes His promise available to and for all. That means that God has redemptively worked to actually demonstrate His mercy both to me, but then for me to then give to others. Notice what He says here. He says in verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So this salvation that's been given to us is also supposed to be given to all. So it is available to us, and it's available for us. It's available to all, and it's available for all. God doesn't make an exception. It's a grace that He he gives to us, and He gives for us. And it says that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. This should be an encouragement to our hearts this morning. That God is still working. Notice the way this passage ends. It says, 
and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Guess what? Because they understood that God was working through redemptive history, they didn't get stuck and say, hey, this isn't just, this isn't right. What did they do? They continued to proclaim the hope of Jesus. It is because of the promise of God, it is because that God is a promise keeper, that we can find encouragement, especially in this season, which seems different and at times unreasonable and hard. And we can say, God's doing something new. God's doing something that I don't understand. And God will be and continuing to be fulfilling the promises that he's given. A promise that speaks to the redemption of his people. And a promise that is fulfilling his purpose for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray just for a moment before we take communion this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you and we can be reminded that you are a God who is a promise keeper. May we find encouragement in that, Lord. May we stop looking at the seasons we're in and the things that we're doing, and may we rejoice in the mission that you've given us. May we rejoice in the grace that you've given us. And Father, may we find encouragement knowing that you are still working. You worked in the past, you're working in the present, and you're working in the future. That God, that you have promised your son will return, but it will be in your timing. Father, may we be a patient people. May we be a people that are marked by joy. And may we find that our joy trumps the, the frustration and anger that we may be experiencing in different seasons. God, I pray that as a church, what we would be known for is you and you alone. Father, may we be citizens who are engaged in this land but may we remember that our citizenship our true eternal citizenship is with you and so father may we be reminded that those things that are at work within us that stir us may they be overcome by the fact that you are a promise keeper and you are not surprised by the things of this world but that you are drawing us to a place of living by faith to carry out your purpose, knowing that your promise is to all and for all. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.